0: I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29, which is our promise for this day. And it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us, and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." Jump from there to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. It starts by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So something is going to be revealed unto us. Deuteronomy 29? 29. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Those things which are revealed belong to us, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Which means if they belong to you and me, you take ownership of it. Everything that's there in Revelation is the revelation which has been revealed to you and to me. We have seen three years back that Revelation is a book that not many people want to get into because it has not been revealed unto them. But to you and to me this day, as the church, the people of God, revelation has been revealed. And therefore, we will continue with our study. And when I heard that promise, which Brother Georgie read out, I said, that's the starting that I need. Because for once, when I came this morning, I really did not have a start. And that's the area where I generally stumble. I need a start. And so when I heard this promise, I said, thank you, God. And thank you, Brother Georgie. Because that's the start that I needed, which will link me to what we are going to be saying today. Now, we have been looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I think we established some time back that there are many letters written in the word of God. And we focus on many letters. We focus on the letters of Paul, and on Peter, and on John. But obviously, the most important letters written to us are actually the letters of Jesus Christ. And these are the seven letters that have been written to us. We are the church so these seven letters needs to take preeminence in our life whatever else are written in the other letters absolutely important words but we need to remember that these are the direct words of jesus christ speaking to you and to me these letters are precious and that's what we have been looking at over the last couple of months now each letter, we said, was addressed to a church, but all the letters were written to all the churches. So you may have a title which says that this is a letter to the church at Ephesus, or to the church at Smyrna, or to the church at Pergamos, or wherever. But this is a letter which was, or these were letters which were written to all churches. These were letters which are written to us today. These are not historical letters. These are not letters which were meant for somebody else. These are letters for us today. So as in any other letter, whether it comes to you in the form of an email, or snail mail, or WhatsApp, or whatever, every letter is read and reread. We read our mails again and again, trying to understand what somebody is saying to us. We read our snail mail the same way. We read our WhatsApp messages, or our Twitter feeds, or whatever it is. We read and reread them again. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 2. And let's start reading the different uh, letters. Now, in his first letters which we saw about two months back, Christ described himself as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Revelation 2, verse 1. And then in that letter, we are told to repent and to return to our first love. In his second letter to the church at Smyrna, Christ describes himself as the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life. And we are told to persevere and to be faithful unto death. And so now we come to the third letter, typically described as the letter to the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. The title of today's study is simply this, Revival in the Church, Overcoming Compromise. Revival in the Church, Overcoming Compromise. Will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and let's read verses 12 to 17. And I shall read it from the New King James Version. The title of this passage this. passage of scripture that we have is the compromising church. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sit in your presence this afternoon, Lord Father, waiting to hear that which you have to say to us. Speak unto every one of us, Lord Father. Father God, yes, we are the people to whom you are revealing the truth, Lord Father. And we are thankful, Lord Father, that you have chosen to reveal deeper truth that is there in your word unto us this day, Lord. Father God, I pray, Lord, that every one of us will learn to focus on you, Lord. Not to be enamored by what is happening around us, Lord Father, but just to focus on you. To listen that Which you have to say to our inner being. Father, we surrender ourselves into your hands and we pray, Lord, that you will minister unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as in all the other letters, Jesus starts by introducing himself. We saw that in the first letter, he introduced himself as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We saw that in the second to the second church, he introduced himself as the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come back to life. So here, to the church at Pergamos, Jesus describes himself as he who has the sharp, two-edged sword. He who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now, what is this sharp sword? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, where it is written, this is the armor of God. At one point, it comes like this. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's also go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And in, this, in these two verses, we are warned of the power of the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." So what is Jesus Christ telling us today when he describes himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword? What is it that he told the church at Pergamos 2,000 years back? And that same message is a message to every one of us this day. He's simply telling us that he is here in the midst of us walking with us. It is with this he is telling us that it is with the word of God that is all-powerful, that is our roadmap for daily living, that it is our guide to decide whether we are living right or wrong. He said, I come to you with my two-edged sword because it is that sword, it is the word of God, which is actually going to tell us, describe to each one of us whether we are living right or wrong. We may be living right according to our own thoughts. We may be living right according to the world. The question is, are we living right according to the word of God? Our future is not decided by us in the sense that I can do what I want. Our future is not decided by the world. Our future is in the hands of God. But the choice to live right is with you and with me. And for everything in life, we need directions. As school children, we use school textbooks, whether we liked it or not. You go to a new city. You use the GPS system to get you to wherever you want to go. Or if you are an old timer like me, you use the paper map. But you need something to give you direction. What about life, day-to-day living? What are you following? Are you following the example set by X, Y, or Z out there? some Hollywood or Bollywood or Nollywood star? Are you following the example of some politician who bends to every wind of doctrine depending on how close or how far he is from the election? Or are you depending on the word of God? Your life, your right living, has to come from the word of God. And if you aren't living right, if I am not living right, it's the word of God which is going to tell me that I'm not doing things right. So when Jesus Christ says, I am he who has the sharp two-edged sword, he's basically telling us that, listen, I am there right in the midst of you, because he's already said this to the church at Ephesus. I am there in the middle, walking amongst you. So we know that Christ is there right amongst us. But then he's telling us, I am giving you the word so that you can live your life right. And this is what he was telling the church at Pergamos. And this is what he's telling you and me. How many of us take the time to open our Bibles, study our Bibles on a day-to-day basis? I mean study, not read. Because I used to read my lessons before going for examinations, and every question sounded, looked strange to me because I just read. But when I started studying, no question looked strange. So you've got to read and spend time. So the question I'm asking you today is simply this. Are you using the roadmap that's there in front of you? And to make things simple for you and me, we have umpteen versions, starting from the King James Version, the Amplified Version, the American Standard Version, the the new NIV, the ELT, which are contemporary English version, the Cowboy Bible. There's so many versions to make things easy for us. It is that Word of God which really matters in our life. And it is the word which means it is Jesus Christ who's going to be there directing that church at Pergamos just as he chooses to direct you and me if we choose to listen to him. This church, as every other church, you and me will either be justified or condemned by the word of God. And not by any other yardstick that we think is appropriate. Let's go to verse 13. Jesus Christ commends the people of the church in Pergamos for their works, their steadfastness, and their faith. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. As Jesus commends the church at Pergamos for their faith, their works, and their steadfastness, he actually says something very interesting. He indicates that the throne of Satan is at Pergamos. The throne of Satan is at Pergamos. Now, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, you will read these words. Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Matthew 5, verses 34 to 35. Jesus Christ says this, "But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool." Similar words are repeated, Acts 7:49. and the full chapter of Revelation chapter four is about God's throne. Seven times in that chapter, talks about God on his throne. David, in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, says this. He acknowledges that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. There is no place where God is not there. Where can I go from your spirit, says David? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. God is everywhere. But the Bible tells us that God's throne is in heaven. And so we know that God's throne is in heaven. But we also know that God can be with us anywhere and everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting in Muscat, or you're sitting in your hometown, wherever it is, or you're visiting a friend or relative in some other part of the world. God can be with you there. So God can be with me here right now, with you right now here, with your parents, with your brothers, with your sisters in some other part of the world, with your friends, with your relatives in other parts of the world. So we have a God who is omnipresent. We have a God who is everywhere, Okay. But Satan can't do that. Satan is territorial. Satan might have tried to deceive us and convince us that he can be there everywhere at the same time. But the fact of the matter is, he is not God. He is a created creature. And as a created creature, he can be in one place. But what Satan has is a fantastically oiled organization. God doesn't need an organization. God needs the church. Satan needs an organization. Okay, but let's go back to Satan. He is territorial. He uses specific places as his seat of power. And that's his throne. He sits on his throne. 2,000 years back, Satan's throne was in Pergamos. And I started thinking, if 2,000 years back his throne was in Pergamos, where is it today? I hope Muskat is not his throne. Okay, but then it's up to us, the church, to decide that. Go back a few verses. Revelation chapter two, verse chapter two, verse nine. You find that the synagogue of Satan was at Smyrna. That's what it says, verse 9. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So from verse 9, we know that the synagogue of Satan was at Smyrna. From verse 13, we know that the throne of Satan is at Pergamos. Okay, so that's where he sits two thousand years back, that's where Satan sat and operated from. And it is to the church which is in that same place that Christ is now writing a letter. I know your works, I know your steadfastness, I know your faith. Even in the midst of Satan, even in the place where Satan lives, where there are my art martyrs like Antipas. yet my church is there, and I know what you guys are doing. This is what Christ was telling them. That is his commendation to them. Okay, Because they needed those words of encouragement, those words of commendation. Jesus Christ knew that it was not an easy task for the people of the church at Pergamos to be faithful, steadfast, persevering, while being in the stronghold of Satan. And so this commendation, when they read it, when they heard it being read out to them, would have meant a great deal to the people of the church at Pergamos. Now, the question for us at Bread of Life is simply this. Are we truly a deeply faithful, steadfast, persevering church, irrespective of the acts of Satan? Or are we a people who have compromised our faith in order to enjoy the comforts of this world? You and I must answer this question. I can't answer it for you. You cannot answer it for me. We all talk about Hezekiah and the time that he was supposed to die. But he went to God and cried and cried and got an extension of 15 years. And then we say, the latter days of Hezekiah were not very good. It would have been better had he died at the God-appointed time of death. I know you don't like to hear this, but there is a God-appointed time for every one of us. To be here and to move out. To live and to die. We need to make sure during the time that we are living that we know Christ. Because then death has no sting upon your life or my life. Death cannot hold us. The grave cannot hold us. Do you know Christ? You need to answer that question. Now before we go on, let me just tell you a little bit about Pergamos, the history and the geography of that place, since I like history and geography. Pergamos was a prosperous city in Asia Minor. Now remember, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, they're all in Asia Minor, current Turkey. Okay, Turkey is a very important place in uh, biblical uh, history. Now, Pergamos was one of the most prosperous cities that was there in Asia Minor at that point of time. It was actually called Acropolis. It was a city which had two portions. There was a portion which was set on top of a hill, and there was the other part of the city which was at the foothill. It was such a huge city. It was not a small place. It was not an insignificant place. It was a place which had the second biggest library of the then known world. The biggest library was in Alexandria. This was the second biggest library. It had huge temples to different gods, to the Greeks, The god of gods was Zeus, Zeus. different ways of pronouncing. His temple was there, and that was at the top of the mountain. If you look at a picture of that temple, in fact, the reconstructed model of that temple of Zeus is there in the Pergamos Temple at Berlin, the Pergamos Museum at Berlin. It is actually like a throne. It has got three limbs sitting on top of the hill, looking down on the rest of the city. That was the temple of Zeus, because he was, according to Greek mythology, the god of gods. And that is reputed to be the throne of Satan. Along with that temple, There were other temples to Dionysius, to Athena, to Asclepius, various uh, gods and goddesses doing different kinds of things. So Pergamos was this fantastically large city thriving under the authority of Satan. And in the midst of that thriving metropolis were a group of people faithful to God not giving in to the temptations of Satan, not worried about his persecution. In verses 14 and 15 of Revelation chapter 2, we read of the condemnation that Jesus Christ brings on the church of Pergamos. Jesus had words of commendation, but unfortunately there were things that they weren't doing right, and so he had to bring the words of condemnation. While some of the church was faithful and steadfast and persevering, there were others who were ready to compromise. Let's read verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Satan very cunningly and deceivingly used the doctrine of Balaam in bringing down the church or in corrupting the church. Now, what is this doctrine of Balaam? We won't read the passages, but the story is actually given in Numbers, chapter 22 to chapter 25, and a little bit in chapter 31. Okay, if you wish to read it at a later date, uh, later time, please feel free to do so. To summarize that story, Balaam was a soothsayer, occasionally called a prophet who was prepared to sell his prophetic gift for money. The king of Moab, Balak, wanted Balaam to curse the Israelites. However, God used Balaam to bless Israel rather than curse them. Knowing that he was unable to curse the people of God, Balaam subtly taught Balak that the way to destroy Israel and the people of God was to make friends with them. Let them not be your enemy. Be friends with them. And when you become friends with them, you can teach them some of your ways. So the big standard, the high standard, the values that that the Israelites have can be diluted when you become friends with them. So you see, Balaam gave a strategy to Balak. You can't defeat them in warfare. I'm not able to curse them because every word that I utter with an intention of curse is being turned into a blessing. So I can't do anything. God is with them. But the way you can defeat these people is to corrupt them, to compromise them, make them compromise. And so you find that from chapter 25, there is a list of things that happened of how the Israelites actually compromised. They settled down there. Till then, they were on an attacking spree, getting rid of nations and capturing land. But here they settled with the Moabites. They got into their idolatrous practices. They got into their modes of free sexual living, sexual immorality. And they went through various other forms of worldly living, which was what the Moabites were used to. And when they did that, and as they did that day after day, they were moving away from the values set by God. The standards that God set for his people were vanishing, because now the Israelites were looking at the standards set by man. You can read the results of this friendship in Numbers 25. But if you go a little beyond that, Numbers 31, and I think we'll have that on the screen in a minute, we read of how Balaam counseled the Moabites to destroy the Israelites. Numbers 31, verses 14 to 16. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands Uh, With the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. You see, this is the doctrine of Balaam. Bringing the world into the church. Telling us it's okay. We can do it like others. We can follow those practices. Many years back, I used to, before I was born again, uh, and I come from a, uh, from a city which has uh, a lot of Hindu practices. And we have a lot of Hindu festivals. And the good thing I liked about all these Hindu festivals, now don't quote me. Okay. But the good thing I liked about all these Hindu festivals is that we got good food. Okay. And I loved food, and I still love food. Okay. So we had the Pongal, and the Dipavali and the Puja, and this thing, and that thing, and uh, you know, whatever. And I would be there with my friends. They would do their pujas, that's perfectly fine with me. And I was saying, Can you please finish off your pujas quickly? They were like Pentecostal prayers, very long. You know, I'd say, Finish it off quickly, please. Why? Because I wanted that (laughs) Laddu. The best of the thing was Laddu. Okay, and I used to enjoy it. And then God started working in me and came to a point where I realized that what I was doing was wrong. I was still not born again. Okay, You don't have to be born again before God works in you. Okay. God starts working in you because he knows that very often we are tough nuts to crack. Okay. God started working in me and telling me that you don't eat food offered to idols. I did not know these verses existed in the Bible. Okay. But it became a little um, uncomfortable for me to eat the food. But then I compromised, and I said, no, I don't want to hurt my friends. OK, they are giving me so lovingly. Let me not hurt them. And so I will take it from them. Maybe I don't eat the full laddu. I eat one fourth of the laddu. And the remaining 3 fourths I kind of put in a basket, and then I th- throw it away. Okay, whatever. Till a point came where God told me that it was wrong. And so one day I I mentioned this. I said, uh, I'm sorry, but I would no longer eat this. Uh, You guys have your festivals, your functions, that's absolutely fine. I get a holiday that's good enough for me. But I'm not joining you guys for this. Believe me, my friends never turned against me. Nobody turned against me. I did not become friendless. My friends, actually some of them said, oh, you are now following the rules of Christianity. (laughs) Hello? They knew it before I knew it. (laughs) You see, so very often we compromise in life thinking that we are going to hurt x, y, or z. But we don't mind hurting God. We don't mind insulting God, but we don't want to hurt our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, whoever. But in reality, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives will respect you for a stand that you take. Okay? You are not expected to compromise, but the church compromised. In Pergamos, they compromised. Okay? The people, many of the people in the church at Pergamos were willing to play along with the Roman and Greeks, with the Romans and the Greeks and the people of that area, just to be able to live in peace, comfort, and prosperity. They didn't think twice about compromise. What about the church today? What about you and me? Is the church, is this church, Truly a reflection of the word of God. If Peter or Paul or any of the early disciples were to come here right now and see the church, would they recognize it as the church they were part of 2,000 years back? Do we have that same standard? Are people coming into the church by the thousands? Are miracles taking place by the hundreds? Are people being delivered of satanic oppression by dozens? Is the church... Really, the church of Christ, or has it become the clubhouse of Christ? Has this church just become a meeting ground, fellowshipping, enjoying yourself? That's the compromise we need to address. Has the world come into the church? Maybe we don't like to join the Rotaract Club or the Lions Club or I don't know what other clubs are here in this region. Because they are worldly and secular, so I will join the club of the church. Is this what the church has become today? This is a question you and I need to answer because Christ is saying, no compromise. You've got to overcome compromise. Do you and I try to use the values and the doctrines of the world as our means to worship God, to teach the word of God, and to serve in God's kingdom? Are we using worldly principles in everything that we do in the church? Where are our values of holiness, of truth, of faith, of purity, brotherly love, of perseverance, of righteousness. It is time for us to truly reflect and repent and return to the Lord as a church as individuals and then in verse 15 jesus christ reminds the church again of the doctrine of the nicolaitans we have already referred to the nicolaitans when we looked at the church at ephesus these were a sect of people who compromised in everything but they also practiced the divide and rule policy they were Fond of creating divisions within the church, they separated the priests from the laity. While God brought unity within the body of the church, the Nicolaitans separated the church into different entities. And this, Jesus Christ hated. When you look around the church, anywhere, isn't this what you see? more division and less unity, a separation of people into different groups, either by country of origin, by caste, community, tribes, by color, by wealth, by professional standing. Do you think we don't do it? Just wait till the end of today's service. Just go out there. And you will see the groups, the divisions that we have in the church. Don't think we don't do it. We are in many ways a replica of the Pergamos church. Be careful. You and I are not as good as what we think we are. We aren't. So what should we do? We need to do the same thing that Jesus Christ told the church at Pergamos. He said, repent. This was his message. Repent. Verse 16, repent. In verse 16, it says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is Christ saying here? Now, if you go back to the church at Ephesus, Christ said, verse 5 of chapter 2, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Repent, or I will remove your lampstand. That means the church of Ephesus would be removed. Okay, But what is Christ saying to the church at Pergamos? Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them. So you have two people in the church, the faithful, steadfast, God-trusting, non-compromising people, and the others. So God says, I will come to you. I will come to the church. And then I will fight against them. The compromising, those who have wavering faith, those who don't persevere, those who are not steadfast, because they are there in the church. So God is going to come with the sword of his mouth and divide the soul from the spirit, the joints from the marrow. That's what he said he's going to do. To the true believers, Christ was assuring them that he wouldn't destroy their local church. He would purge out the compromising people. You see, Christ couldn't afford to destroy the church at Pergamos because that would be victory for Satan. Because Satan would immediately start saying that, I got rid of them from Pergamos. No, Christ was going to be there. The church at Pergamos was going to be there, irrespective of how big Satan was. But there were people who needed to be thrown out. There were people who needed to be evicted. And that is, again, the message to us today. Repent. Stop compromising with the world. Stop your idolatrous practices. Stop playing your games with the idols in your life. Return to God, or he will purge you out. The church is not a clubhouse we come to once a week. It is the house of God, where God has to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And now we come to the last verse, verse 17. He who has a year, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. God instructs us to be overcomers. And when we are overcomers, there are two rewards for us. Number one, you will have the hidden manna to eat. Number two, you have the white stone. Okay, so let's take each one. Two minutes for each. Now, what is this hidden manna? And for this, we will have to go back in time in history to a place where God first used manna. So let's go to Exodus chapter 16, verses 32 to 34. Exodus chapter 16, verses 32 to 34. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it. To be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Okay, so there we have an instruction of what to do with the manna, a a part of it. Let's Let's find out what happened to this manna. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, verses 2 to 4. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 2 to 4. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So this manna, where Moses gave an instruction long, long, long time back, is now in the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus Christ says, your reward to be an overcomer is I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Okay? So let's move on a little bit. How does this apply to us today? Let's go to John, chapter 6, verses 47 to 51. John 6, 47 to 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, these are the words of Christ. He who believes in me has everlasting life. which I shall give for the life of the world. So now, let's try to link these things together. Jesus Christ is simply saying, he is the manna for you and me. And for us to eat of this manna, to be an overcomer, you've got to know Jesus Christ. That's why every month when the Lord's table is laid out, we end by saying, this table is open to those who have accepted, received and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, who have obeyed him on waters of baptism, because this bread which is given to you and to me is not to be taken lightly. It is what Christ has given us for eternal life. We have been promised this as the manna. And in order for us to get this manna, have it for eternal life, we need to be overcomers. We need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I will just quote one additional verse at this point, and that is this. 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you've got to link these things together. We we don't have the time to go on for another one hour. Others, I wish I would go on. Okay, just to say that this manna, which is given to us as a reward for being an overcomer, also links with Jesus Christ being the bread of life. And in either instance, To be an overcomer or to taste of this bread of life and live forever, you and I have to know God. You and I need to accept Jesus Christ as our personal savior. Knowledge of Jesus Christ alone is not enough. That's a PhD topic. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ is what matters. And that is what will make you an overcomer. And if you are an overcomer, you have the manna for life. In addition to that, Jesus Christ says one more thing. He says, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So what is this white stone? What, is it, what does it mean? Now, we have to go back about 2,000 years. And there were two common practices in vogue at that time amongst the Jews, amongst the Greeks, amongst the Romans. Now, practice number one was this. If you were on trial in a Greek or Roman court, and if after all the hearings, the judge decides that you are innocent and must be freed He would hand over a white stone to you. That white stone signifies to everybody that this man is no longer a prisoner, this man is not guilty, this man is free. Because everybody can see the white stone. So when Jesus Christ says that He is giving you a white stone, what is He saying? I am declaring you not guilty. Satan says you are a sinner. Satan is the accuser. But I have decided that you are not guilty. Here is the white stone. So the church at Pergamos could understand that because that was a practice of that time. So that was the first use of the white stone. The second use of the white stone was this. If you were invited to a banquet by a rich man, you would be given a white stone to hand over to the gatekeeper at the door of the banquet. Otherwise, you know, the banquets have good food. And you guys have people like me. I would be there at every banquet, you know, whether I had the white stone or not. So to make sure that people did not just barge into every banquet and eat off the food, this was the invitation card to the banquet, White Stone. So when you got to the banquet hall, you you gave the White Stone to the gatekeeper, and he would say, enter. And now you have the right to be in the banquet hall and share of everything that is there in the banquet hall. So, if you had the white stone with your new name written on it, God was welcoming you into the marriage feast of the Lamb. As simple as that. So, what he was telling us as rewards is one, you will have life everlasting when you eat the manna, number two, you are invited into my kingdom. This is what God was telling, this is what Jesus Christ was telling the people of Pergamos when he said, be an overcomer. So church, what shall we do not to lose these rewards? Simple, be an overcomer. And you know how to do it. Be an overcomer. Shall we stand? Now as we stand and turn to God, again, don't worry about the person next to you. Bring to remembrance your own life. Look at those areas where you have compromised. Take a decision that, no, I shall no longer compromise. The standard of God is going to be what I am going to look at. Forgive me, Father, for I have done wrong. Seek a new life in Christ. The rewards for an overcomer are too much for us to lose for the temporary passions of this world.
1: Father, we thank you. We bless your name. Brethren, I want you to realize that what does compromise look like in your personal life? What does compromise look like in your family? And what does compromise look like in the church? Do you go to places you know you are not spiritually healthy? Do you tell others? that what you do is none of their business especially when the believers try to warn you i want you to know something today that compromise defeat achievement compromise defeat achievement why jesus appreciated all the work of the pagans church but because of their Compromising status, it defeats all the achievements they have made. Compromise allows worldliness. Are you someone in the church and somebody outside? Compromise allows worldliness. And compromise has consequences. And Jesus has given the choice. Two choices were given. Repent or face judgment. You need to be an overcomer. At this point, just like in the book of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28a, let a man examine himself. As you close your eyes, I want you to examine yourself. Are you compromising? Are you somebody in the church and someone outside? You need to pray, God, guide me, give me the spirit that will enable me to overcome all the compromising spirit in me. Begin to talk to God. Tell God, Lord, I want to be a worldly person in your presence so that I can be an overcomer. Remove me from every circumstances that lead me to compromise. Talk to God. I've heard the message today. Father, I want my life to glorify you. I don't want the area where I've compromised to destroy all my achievement in your presence. Father, lead me. Guide me. I want to be an overcomer. Talk to God. Speak unto God. You know those areas you are compromising. Ask God to direct you. Ask God to give you the spirit. When the Spirit of God dwells in you, you will always be an overcomer. And God will answer you in Jesus' name. Father, we want to thank you for another beautiful message. We want to thank you for another reminder that, Lord, we need to be 100% loyal to you. Lord, every area we have been compromising, we pray and we decree that your spirit will take them away from our life in the mighty name of Jesus. And as we show ourselves in your presence, wherever we may be, let your glory shine over us so that we will not compromise. Let people know that we are serving a living God. Let our character, our behavior shows that, yes, we serve a living God and we will not compromise. Thank you, everlasting God. We bless your holy name. And for your servant that you have used, Father, reload him in the mighty name of Jesus. He has offloaded this one today. Father, right now begin to reload him with more anointing in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, everlasting God. As we go this week, Father, go ahead of us in Jesus' name. The rest of our program for the week, Father, we pray that we shall not compromise in Jesus' name. Take over and take full control in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, almighty God, for in Jesus' name we are praying. Let us share the grace together in fellowship. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.